do you agree that you know it's time that we all wake up and take responsibility even for our ancestors that did not know any better been waiting patiently to have this kind of conversation <laughs> Well, it's Wake Up With Casey. I'm Kimberly. And let me ask you something. You know, what is the meaning to you of diversity? What about inclusion? And what about tolerance? What if there's a failure of tolerance in today and how we're living? I have Dr. Kristen Donnelly joining us today to discuss this. Please welcome Dr. Kristen Donnelly. Hi, everybody. Kimberly, thank you so much for having me. Well, it is an honor and a pleasure. And um, I came across, you know, one of your talks and uh, and I found the topic that you talked about, how diversity, uh, how it is a mental program, a limited belief based on our upbringing and so much more. Please share with us today of how did this even begin in your discovery of what you've seen in your life experience, how you transformed your life with this? That's a fantastic question. And in order to answer it, I have to talk a little bit about my family. So my family has a mission statement. We're one of those families and it's to impact lives and create wealth. And the wealth is holistic. So it's emotional, economic, spiritual, financial, um, you know, psychological, communal, it's kind of all wealth. And so from the time that I was conscious, I was programmed in a way and trained and shown and guided to ask the question at all times of how can I serve the person in front of me? How can I impact their life and create wealth in their lives? We do it primarily through our network of family companies, of which I'm currently the co-owner and COO. And we also just do it in our personal lives. So even though I grew up in the suburbs, we, since I was seven years old, we've owned a manufacturing factory in a very, very under-resourced neighborhood in Philadelphia called Kensington. And it is very common for you know there to be functional illiteracy among adults. There's high rates of teenage pregnancy, like all of the tick boxes that tell you the neighborhood is a quote unquote problem exist in this neighborhood. And so I lived, I grew up spending school and playtime and church and Girl Scouts in a very typical suburban, like, I don't know, I joke that I grew up in Stars Hollow from Gilmore Girls, and it's not that far off, like pretty, pretty typical suburban America. But then also had this foot in Kensington and understood from a very, very young age that different people are different. And that being born in a certain place, we call it, I call it postcode privilege, where there's not, I didn't control who I was born to or who I was born, where I was born or how my parents raised me. All I could do is recognize my own privilege and leverage it for the power of others. So I've had this background forever. And I go through life and um, I have a, I get an undergraduate degree in adolescent psych. I spend a year in Northern Ireland teaching sex ed actually, which was changed my life and was fascinating. I get two master's degrees in people studies, in social work, and in religious anthropology. And the driving question of my life is how does what people believe about themselves and the world around them 
affect how they interact with other people. If you grew up in the suburbs like me and you have no interaction with anybody who is different than you, what do you believe about those people who are different than you? Do you pity them? Do you envy them? Do you think they are less than you? How, how do you, how do you work with that? For example, so when I was time to do my doctorate, I went back to Northern Ireland and did it there and studied a lot about specifically women in that particular conversation. But the driving question remained, how does what we believe about ourselves in the world shape and affect how we live? And all throughout that whole time, my PhD was in 2015. And so I've been kind of doing this, this official work since then. But for most of my adolescence and, and 20s, I began to hate the word diversity. And it's because I would go to these diversity workshops where the only diversity anybody was talking about was racial. We were only concerned with black people and white people. And we pretended it could be accomplished in a workshop. And I happen to be somebody who is very different than most of the people I'm around at any given time. So I know forever that I carried diversity within me. At my university, I was, I was one of the only students whose family owned a business. That makes me really different than the rest of my, my peers. I see the world differently, but they pretended, and this is what tolerance has done, they pretended that because I was white, I was the same, that whiteness is a homogenous group. There is no homogenous group. There is no homogenous person. We are all many things, all at once. And instead of engaging with uh, the other, quote unquote, instead of engaging with other people and understanding and recognizing their innate humanity and also their complicated diversities, we have pretended that diversity is a goal and instead it's a reality. What the goal needs to be instead is inclusion. Now, tolerance is the stumbling block to that because tolerance pretty is completely passive. It doesn't interact with anybody else. It just says, okay, you are alive because I cannot kill you. That's it. That's all tolerance does. The minute you mentally engage with somebody beyond that, even if it's to say you are toxic and I cannot do life with you, that is no longer tolerance. That is something else. And so we have to learn to engage with other people so that we can get achieve inclusion because we already have diversity. Wow. That's impressive. And, you know, listening to what you just said, you know, the thought came to mind, you know, the, the separation and division, which was originated back in history. If you go and do your research, that's when it actually was created. Oh, yeah. We've been dividing people into groups based on arbitrary crap forever, like forever. It's how we've been doing life forever. That doesn't mean it's the way that we're supposed to human. It just means it's the way that we have been. And what can we do to change that? Stop. <laughs> um, <laughs> Easy said than done. Well, that's the thing. All of my solutions are really, really simple. They're very difficult to do as a practice and to shape your life around them, but they're really simple. You have to get to know people who are different than you. You have to listen and ask questions. You have to get used to change, get like, you have to normalize changing your mind and you have to get used to being wrong. And you got to do all of that without guilt or any sort of like emotional angst or consternation. Who you were yesterday is no longer relevant to the conversation we're having today ish like you know caveat but you can't like 
who you were yesterday was doing the best they could. You know differently now. So do differently. If you weep and gnash your teeth over what you did yesterday, this solves nothing. And it wastes a whole lot of emotional energy. We have too much else to do. So there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of just kind of pragmatism. You got to learn to sit with other people who are different. I've got, you know, some suggestions as to how you do that. That's my entire YouTube channel. My business partner and I, Dr. Aaron, we call ourselves the good doctors of Abbey Research. And we put up three, four or five videos a week, helping people see the world through lenses other than their own. That's our mission statement. That's our existence. We are empathy educators who are obsessed with curiosity. So we do it all the time, but it is a discipline. It's a practice. It's a posture you move through the world with. It is not a workshop or tick box exercise. You don't achieve this. You build it into who you are as a human and you continue to practice it. Well, that's like what Dr. Joe Dispenza and T. Harv Hecker, you know, these are my mentors, Greg Braden, Dr. Bruce Lipton. And it's like, it. you change your mind, you change your life. You know, you got to, like you said earlier, unlearn. It's just taking, it's like our mind is the motherboard. What we've been seeing, hearing, and speaking is going in to the hard drive, into your like subconscious until you sort of have aha or wake up moments. Like, you know what? This isn't really... How can I change the way I think, the way I feel, and the things I do in order to transform my life to become the best version of myself? Yeah. And, you know, I'm born and raised in Florida. I'm a Floridian. But I've never been outside of the U.S. Mm -hmm. I always wanted to. I wanted to see what it was like over in other places. So the only place I could get any information, you know, thank goodness for technology, is by pictures, reading books, going on the internet and researching. And it's like other cultures, you know, cultures, you know, and they create societies and then societies create all this other dynamics and how we live. Yep. And to me, it's like, if you, you want to know, want to solve a problem, go to the root of the problem then you can change and realize, well, this didn't work in the past. This has been going on for history. What can I do now to change it for the better? And we're and all the point, the point of the systems that we live under, systemic racism, systemic patriarchy, you know, systemic, you know, white supremacy, ableism, like all of the ways in which we've crafted the world. And so the most, the default definition of human is a white middle-class cisgendered heterosexual white male who is completely able-bodied and whose BMI is medically acceptable. That's what we've decided is the ideal human. And we've decided this even in cultures where there aren't necessarily white men. We've still kind of globally decided that this is the default human. And you look at how technology is designed and, and how transportation is designed and all this kind of stuff. So it's a lot of work to go against a system. Like internalized misogyny is a hell of a drug. Like it's a lot of work to go against a system. And so what can we do? My answer is, first of all, understand that you're probably like, I need to be really pragmatic, going to tear down the system. Mm -hmm. But the way the system actually is torn down is through little acts of resistance. 
it's every time it's like as we're recording this in the middle of July, the SBs were this weekend. And the best collegiate athlete, um, and her name escapes me, was a white basketball player. And she used her SB speech to say, listen, I know as a white girl in a black sport, I get more media attention and that's crap. Those are little actions, small ways in which you orientate yourself to the lives and worldviews of other people. And you just keep doing it. That's why I started this podcast <laughs> because it's like, we got to change. And I just felt, you know, being intuitive that it's time to speak now. It's time to, when I show up, those that need to be on the show are going to come. And it's me. It's about wake up, wake up from the program, wake up from these limited beliefs that have been passed down. Even the inner, the emotional, energetic traumas, you know, I talk about, I'm like, we got to change this. This is not, you know, to help humanity, to help our planet. We got to change this up in here. Yeah. It's, it's a lot. We have a lot more choice over how we move through the world than we often think we do. And there's a there's a lot of you know just go with the flow and people are busy and we get it and we speak a lot about how we are aware that we have this time to do deep dives into the colonial history of mozambique for example which is what we're doing right now um because you know of how we've structured our lives and the decisions that we've made and so an important piece for us is you do what you can you mm -hmm. love the person in front of you the best that you can when you find something that feels different to you than you've ever known before, instead of shutting it down and getting defensive, you get curious. You chase that curiosity and you chase it until you've got more questions. Because here's the like one of the greatest secrets of any researcher will tell you, you are never done asking questions. My PhD answered one question and asked 19 more. Like that's always actually a piece of academic research is what is further research needed? We are, we exist to perpetuate questions because we're never going to fully know. None of us really know how to human. None of us really know what we're doing. We're all figuring it out as we go along. We see through a glass darkly. And that's the point. So we have to help each other out. We have to listen to each other. We have to get curious because none of us are the authority on human. Mm -mm. We all have to learn to hold each other, even the people that you violently disagree with, even the people that you think are, you know, garbage. You don't need to be in a relationship with them, but you need to hold their worldview as theirs. Well, it's just, it's a, a mutual respect, you know, like I've learned even in my vocabulary on how I speak, it's, you know, it's okay to disagree. However, looking at the media and how the news and, you know, people on social media and whatnot, it's, wow, you know, Okay, you disagree with what I'm saying, but why do you have to be so angry about it? Why are people so angry? You know, just because you agree with that doesn't mean other people have to agree with what you're, that makes it, it's like, okay, you agree with that, I agree with this. We can come to a mutual respect for one another because we have different points of views. Yeah, and some of this is, you know, I was actually just talking about this on a podcast last week. So there's a lot of there's a lot of answers as to why everybody is so angry. Um, but anger, anger's root is fear. Mm -hmm. That's root. And so fear of scarcity, fear of a loss of power, fear of not being able to provide pick a fear. That's that's anger's root is a fear of something. And in the last 
12 years, we have created a lot of algorithms that feed people's fear and a lot of technology that continues to feed people's fear. It validates their fear, even if it's logically outlandish, it says it's totally normal and actually here's the evidence, even when there isn't any. This is what has happened in the, in the, last, in the last little bit. And what that does is drive all of us deeper into our confirmation bias. We only seek out information that comforts us. We only seek out information that makes us feel good about the world. Now, obviously, there's lots of people who don't do that, but it's an intentional decision. It's really easy to not curate my Twitter feed. It's really easy to only watch stuff I agree with. Because after a while, you just get tired of fighting sometimes. You get tired of thinking. You get tired of humaning. And you want to be around people who our instincts tell us to find people like us so that we're safe. The problem with listening to our instincts on that is that no one is actually exactly like us. And so we've found something that looks familiar, that feels safe, and then we've ignored anything else about the person and haven't tried to get to know them deeper, haven't identified other things, haven't learned to hold a lot of something about a person in tension. I'll share my husband and I on paper look very, or I should say in a picture, we look very compatible. Um, it's very clear that we're both white. We're both middle class. We both have glasses. Um, and we look like we love each other because we do. It's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty easy picture, but then you start to get to the stuff on paper. And I was raised in an American suburb and baptized Protestant. He was raised in a Northern Irish village, baptized Catholic in the middle of their armed conflict. I have multiple postgraduate degrees and left high school at, you know, 18. He left high school a lot earlier, got a tech certificate and worked for a really long time while also getting a bachelor's and never went on. He has family members who are farmers. I don't. We have completely different ways that we see the world in a lot of, in a lot of experiences. Yet we make it work because we can hold how the other person sees the world in tension with how we do. We don't prioritize it. We don't, we don't say that like John's completely valid because even he'll tell you about Northern Ireland, he doesn't know as much as I do because it was literally my job for years to teach the conflict. He has learned a ton of stuff about his own country from me and that's okay. That's fine. And that's part of this work of developing inclusivity is not just stopping at the picture and going, oh, they must be a lot alike. We have some things in common, but in terms of how we were formed as humans, Dot, like very, very different. Wow. And what you mentioned before is, um, you know, asking, a, you know, asking questions, being a researcher. And I feel like I've always been like a researcher, always curious, especially if something didn't sit well with me mm -hmm. or, you know, and it had to do a lot with you know, my upbringing and, you know, my own life experiences. And then I just like woke up one day. I'm like, is this all there is to life? Because if this is it, I don't want to be here. Yeah. You know, and that's when I started asking the questions, you know, is the grass greener on the other side from where I'm standing? You know, I got out of abusive marriages and, you know, I have been through some stuff, but still, asked a question, okay, how do I get out of this? What do I, it's just connecting to, I guess my higher self, my spiritual self, there's something greater intelligence that I'm connected to and going to that space. And 
it led me to more questions <laughs> and then I get the answer. I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But what about that? And I find it, I just become a cure, you know, a curious researcher that, you know, how does picking other people's brain of how they think their perspective, their views. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's interesting. You know, but then you got that negativity. So how to people that are just so stuck in their own reality that they're so comfortable with it. It's just like that negative energy. How do you go about dealing with that kind of person to where I'm like, stay away from those kind of negative people because all they're doing is spitting out more venom. And that's fair. Um, and that's a lot of people's reaction. My reaction is to at least understand why they're that angry and at least understand why they're that negative. Um, Cause if I can't, I don't believe in excuses, but I do believe in explanations and we mm -hmm. all carry context in our bones. And so this is where a lot of my social work training comes in. Um, the very first thing that you're taught as a social worker is to understand the innate worth and dignity of every human done. It doesn't matter who they are, what they believe, what they've done, anything. They're a human person and therefore they have innate worth and dignity. And so when I start from that position, it makes it a lot easier to ask questions and it makes it a lot easier to hold their life experiences in tension. I have a friend who, I mean, if you look at the like dictionary definition of child abuse, she is like every single text box, like every single one. And there are, she's obviously a very complicated adult. We all are, but she's got some extra baggage. And when I first met her, I didn't know any of this stuff. Cause it's not like you, we walk around with like our trauma certificate, you know, like stapled to us. But the more I understood why she reacted certain ways to even certain restaurants, why she would get really, really angry when I was reading a book that she had a negative memory with, the more I could get her to talk and explain things to me, the more I could carry empathy for her. And also she could pursue healing. That's another thing is that often really negative people don't even understand why they're negative and don't even understand how to get out of it. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so she didn't want to be this way. She wanted to be free, but it all felt overwhelming and scary. And so we could do tiny baby steps. I don't need you to tell me the entire history of this particular incident. I'm just really curious why McDonald's is a scary place for you. Like, can you unpack that for me? And that was done in relationship and that was done, you know, in a lot of things. And now did I, you know, was I negatively, possibly emotionally affected? Maybe, but honestly, part of, I think energy work is not absorbing the energy of other people. And so I could sit, as long as I was sitting in my, my energy and my calling and who I was and my divinity and all those other words that you want to use, she really couldn't affect me in that way. And it actually let me love her in a deeper and better way. Wow. I'm glad you said that. That is a new perspective of looking at it, even as challenging as it is to even during this pandemic and every the chaos that you, I have to limit what I see. And that makes total sense. Programmed. You're being programmed. It's more fear and all that. And to me, it's unnecessary because I have the acronym for fear is false evidence appearing real. Very, very true. And I think the thing that's important for me to say here to you is that that is not the people who you have determined as toxic in your life. 
there is a difference between somebody you don't know well or somebody you find kind of negative or somebody who just irritates you and somebody who is actively toxic and destroying your life. And I am a big believer in boundaries. You cut people out when you need to because that is not against anything I am saying. In fact, that supports what I am saying. That in order to be a human and live as your full self, you have to know who you are. You can understand where somebody's coming from and not choose to be in a relationship with them. That is completely valid. And in fact, my frequent practice. <laughs> I am, I know a lot of people. I'm a massive extrovert. I've lived in a bunch of different places around the world. I've had a Facebook for 15 years. Um, and so I know, air quotes, a lot of people. They all don't, we all don't know each other at the same level. We all don't know each other. Like not many people know my traumas or my deep pains or things like that. I choose what I am emotionally vulnerable with with other people. But I hope that just about any person. I mean, like I sat down with, you know, people who were convicted of murder in Colombian prisons and just said, tell me your story. What's going on? What do you miss about your mom? Um, and was able to hold that stuff. I, I did the same thing with people who were really terrible to my brother. I sat with in, in a particular situation. Now I, I helped them make sure they face consequences, but because everybody consequences are part of actions, but I could hold, I could understand where they were coming from. And that then freed me up to be the healthiest version of human I could be. And this is what the spiritual discipline of forgiveness often is and often is grounded in the ability to understand somebody, not condone their actions, and then say, okay, that really has nothing to do with me. I'm going to move away now. Or it had a lot to do with me. You hurt me very deeply. I'm not going to let you do it again. But I'm also, I held you accountable. Here's this. This is the actions. This is whatever. And now we're closing this door and I'm done. There's a lot of ways to do forgiveness that are grounded in this, in this idea. Wow. So, I mean, you talk about forgiveness and, you know, being up, growing up in the, the, you know, Baptist religion, it's, Oh, forgive those who hurt you. Well, okay. If they keep hurting me, I'm supposed to keep forgiving them. There's gotta be some kind of boundary. You can't just, you know, and in that, there's a certain scripture they can, you know, keep repeating. And I would forgive them 70 times seven. And I would say from the spiritual discipline perspective, once you kind of achieve this understanding, it's a lot easier to do that. However, you set that boundary the first time or as soon as you possibly can. And if they keep doing the action, then you either, then you can move away from them in your life or you can just say, that's them. You've adjusted your expectations of them. You know this is who they're always going to be. Maybe you can't cut them out of your life. Maybe they're they're in maybe they're in family or there's some uh, like communal connection where you can't cut them out. So you just see them for who you are. Because the other piece of this is we trust Maya Angelou, who said who said very eloquently, when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. Oh, interesting. So when someone has showed you who they are, truly and deeply, you know that. We can all do the justifications and the thing like, oh, well, they might be different and they might be. No, you know who this person is. You know when something's an accident and when something is part of a pattern. You know in your gut. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just one of those things. So this is all connected to me to the discipline of holding empathy for people, of understanding, not condoning, not necessarily choosing relationship, but pursuing understanding. And then you have the choice of, you know, especially when it comes to toxic relationships, even with family you power, yep. you have that power to say, you know what, this is not healthy for me. It's not helping me be the best version of me. So I have to cut my ties. 
And it is just, my policy to not engage with people who don't believe in me. Wow. That that's a good uh, statement right there. Yep. It's my personal policy not to be in relationship with people who don't believe in me. I don't always say that to that person. I think I've only said it a couple of times, but that's the plumb line I use. If you don't believe in me and my calling and you don't, you're not on board with this, I got a lot of work to do. And I don't have time to do someone's emotional maintenance of somebody who's not on board with me. I will do a, a mutual emotional maintenance until the cows come home. But I am, I'm not, I lived a lot of life as a doormat. I'm not doing it anymore. I, 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 I feel you on that one. A people pleaser, yeah. you know, always. And I think it was from, um, you know, a scripture that I read is like, do unto others that you do to yourself. So yeah. I'm like, okay, if I'm giving love, affection, respect, I'm thinking, okay, I should be getting that receptively. Yeah, absolutely. And then what happens if you don't like, okay, I, I'm giving all this. I'm, I, I'm treating this person the way I want to be treated, but this person's not giving me the same as I'm giving. Isn't this a law of attraction kind of thing? I mean, that's where I'm like, Ish. Yeah, I think like, I respect the law of attraction. I'm not saying the law of attraction is wrong, but I think all universe laws are nuanced. Like, I think they're all, all of humanity is nuanced. So like, you're going to attract, like, you have to be in life with people you don't like. <laughs> that's just, that's how humanity works. Um, and so, yeah, you might be attracting negativity. You can look at that. If everybody in your life is a terrible person, look at your own inner life. And you're like, I don't like anybody I hang out with. Well, look at what, what, value this is really typical thing of people who date people who are not kind to them often are not kind to themselves that is that's like a you know a fairly decently proven statistical reality and also just a massive trope in fiction it's it's something we kind of all understand but you'll still have to be in relationship on some level even if it's professional with people that you think are garbage people <laughs> And so doing your own work inside to hold your own power and your own divinity and your own energy, pursue understanding with them, but don't engage energetically with them is the, is the ultimate goal and kind of end game to use Marvel parlance of where we're going here so that you can engage more holistically without potentially opening yourself up to vulnerabilities. That's great. Thank you for sharing that with us. And uh, what you said you do workshops yep. and whatnot. Now, with your profession and with this pandemic, how did you work around to be able to still offer your services and whatnot? Oh, we went on YouTube. Oh, okay. We went on YouTube. We, um, we had been on YouTube before. Um, and when we were doing consulting a little bit differently, we weren't doing as many workshops. We were doing a little bit more long-term consulting. And in the kind of middle of the pandemic, we looked at each other and we were like, no one's going to A, be paying for consulting a whole lot. And B, we don't think that's really where our passion is. We think we actually started doing it because a lot of people said we would be good at it. But we don't have a lot of as much fun doing it as we thought we would. So what do we have fun doing? We have fun educating. Okay, what can that look like? So we just, you know, Blue Sky dreamed, what could this look like? So we, you know, created a couple new series on our YouTube channel. We have one called The Colonizers World Tour. 
where we go around the world and spend a, a week in a different country that has been colonized every single week and talk about the effects of colonization on them. We discovered there are only three countries in the world who were not at least temporarily colonized by a European entity. Three. Really? Japan, South Korea, and Thailand. That's it. It's three. And so we have to be talking about colonization significantly more than we are if we want to talk about culture and globalization and systemic racism and white supremacy. We've got to talk about colonization. So we started. We started. We just picked. We went through and picked some countries. We're going to do more next year. So we started that. We started doing some more you know, coverage of culture. We love talking about culture, both popped and lived, and how you can use culture to help build empathy. So we did a lot of that. We didn't charge really any money during COVID. There was other priorities going on. Um, we were lucky enough to be part of an umbrella company that could cover that mission and not make us charge for a little while and just kind of help people work through. Breonna Taylor and George Floyd's murders could work through the Asian spa shooting, could kind of work through what does pride mean now, why are pronouns so important, like all of these kind of things as a mission. And, you know, now COVID's ending and we're starting to get speaking gigs again. I've given one TED talk. I'm a TEDx speech in May of 2015, uh, in May of 2021. I'm about to give another one in October of 21. Um, and so we're, we're, we're shifting a little bit, but we love doing workshops. We love, we prefer to do them in person. We'll continue to do them over Zoom for a little while if necessary, but we love doing them in person. We have got a couple kind of key topics that we teach over and over again. Um, kind of any organization like we will talk, we'll talk to anybody who wants to talk to us. I cannot teach you to care about other people. I, I can't do that. But we can teach you how to better care about other people and walk alongside of you and give you some tips and work out and have some really difficult conversations. We routinely say you cannot scare us. I taught sex ed to 11-year-old boys. You cannot scare me. Um, we have heard it all. We are not offended by anything. And we carry a lot of privileges that mean that we don't have skin in the game of some of the conversations we're trying to have. And we'd like to do the emotional labor so that the marginalized folks that we're not a part of their community don't necessarily have to and don't feel they have to. We like to be the people that can, like you can tap in the, the nice white ladies to be like, actually that was racist. <laughs> actually, we don't use that word anymore. Well, actually, um, and kind of do that life with some people to hopefully save some emotional labor of people that have been doing it for far too long anyway, because none of us were paying attention. So that's kind of like a long answer to your question, but our goal in life is service. And our goal is to change the world that very, very simple and very measurable goal. We drive business coaches nuts with that. But our goal is to change the world and to change and to have a, have a positive impact, whether that is how they change their thinking or they change their, their you know, posture in the world with everybody we come in contact with as much as we can. And when we, you know, we become accustomed to eating. So we do enjoy getting paid to do it, but we, you know, the focus is always service. Wow. And I'm right there with you. That's uh, another reason why I started this podcast. But you mentioned something about the colonization. Mm -hmm. And I love history. So when you started uh, saying like there's three countries that Europe did not go and conquer to take over. And Europe is the biggest ones that have ventured out. And it was like conquer and divide. Yeah, I mean, the United States played their its beliefs and religion, and yeah. you know, even here in the United States, and I think that's part of the root to why you know, there we're not getting along. 
you know, I think I think there's a lot of reasons. Um, and when I look at, at at history, institutions are often put in place to perpetuate their own power. So whatever the institution looked like. Um, and the United States was the first country to formalize a separation of church and state um, in its constitution. Lots of others have done it since. Most famously, France stole most of our constitution. But they were the first ones. So wherever people went, like, yeah, there was a lot of really, really terrible missiology. But it's also, it's just resources. Everyone was colonized because of resources. And like, there are countries in Europe that were colonized by other countries. Like most of Eastern Europe was colonized by Russia. Like there's not a lot of places that weren't colonized at some point. Like Brit, like Britain ages and ages ago dealt with the Roman, you know, folks coming up. Ireland was colonized by the Vikings before they were colonized by the Brits. Um, you know, there's a lot of, it's very, very messy and has been messy for a really long time. When you, when you do the thing of that happened most frequently in South America and Sub-Saharan Africa, where you start to determine someone's worth based on arbitrary physical features like race or nose size or foot size or height, like the Belgians did in Rwanda, that's a different bit of a ball game. But yeah, institutions perpetuate power. It's what they do. And they, the, the, the impetus behind behind countries doing colonization was twofold one but the first thing is always resources whether those resources were people or natural resources or a strategic like plane location the united states owns guam because it's a a, a strategic air force field like that's why we own guam and absolutely state churches came along with that and so what's one of the interesting things about the united states is that we didn't ever had a state church but we have a civic religion and we've we've we it's patriotism. It's Christian nationalism. It's 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 kind of this big soup of what it means to be American when it's defined in a really narrow way. We still have a civic religion. We just never had a state church. And people will form together to believe whatever they think will give them power, whether it's an institution or not. I'm glad you said that because to me, religion is another form of a business. It often is, especially in the United States. Um, you know, there are definitely some, I'm a, I'm a deeply faith-based person. I have theology degrees and um, I'm still an active member in a congregation, but I will be the very first person to call out institution. Um, and that institution will always protect itself and that that has nothing to do with faith or scripture or the kingdom of God. And it is, it is dressed up like that a lot, but a lot of my research is on how, like we covered the handmaid's tale. We talk about this a lot, how, people like put on religion and really what they're putting on is power. To control the mass. No, it's very. Take your money because I, I, I've seen it like these people and, and, and they act one way when they're in the, I, if you want to call it church building, but as soon as they leave, it's, it's a whole nother face that you see not being too authentic there are definitely folks like that in all religions for sure yep. not just christianity yep and there are great faithful folks in all religions as well yep and, and it's sad because it's it doesn't have to be that way no it doesn't and i've studied the holy scriptures of nearly every religion that i can find holy scriptures for and none of them well there's a couple cults but you know, the, the kind of all the big ones are about getting along as with others and being a better person. 
Um, so we've perverted it for power in a different way, but that's a like a completely separate podcast is why we should all just go beat up Charlemagne somewhere because he ruined everything. <laughs> um, Charlemagne and Constantine ruined everything, but that's a separate yeah, interview. It, uh, yeah, and I would love to uh, talk more about that, the history of it because I've done some research and discovered a few things about the ancient civilization with cuneiform writings. Mm. And it's very fascinating of what I've discovered and like, oh my God, like. <laughs> the world is wilder than we ever give it credit for. I'm very famous for saying I don't care about history before the Reformation, but um, like jokingly, but all my study is Reformation and onwards. Um, but it is, the humans are always, always wilder than you think they are, always. Mm-hmm, it, it's astounding to me. Um, you have a Facebook group. You have a, we don't have a Facebook group. Actually, okay. we do not, um, that we have a Facebook page, um, and we have a YouTube and a Twitter and an Instagram. Um, and the best place to interact with us is in the comments on either Instagram or YouTube. Uh, but we do not have a Facebook group. That's like one I would forget to man it. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it would just, yeah. So there's only two of us. Uh, so we have, we, we do not have that. Well, I know it's gonna, it is uh, in the description. So yes, all the links will be, yes, I gave you all the links that people need to get a hold of us. And I am so thankful for this experience, just having you on the show. It was such a delight. And I would love- It was an honor. I would love to have you again, even with your, um, your partner. For sure, we will, uh, we'll look at getting that on the schedule. Absolutely. I look forward to it. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Kristen Donnelly. It was definitely a pleasure. And I hope this helps somebody that's listening today to even just question and just think outside the box. For sure. Well, I loved this interview. It just was insightful educational and i hope it was the same for you join me again for another episode with wake up with kc until then have a wonderful day do you agree that you know it's time that we all wake up and take responsibility even for our ancestors that did not know any better been waiting patiently to have this kind of conversation <laughs>